Welcome to Relationship Revisions with Whitney and Hill. Hi, I'm Dr. Hilary Schlamer. I'm an Associate Professor of Management and Entrepreneurship at Arkansas State University with a PhD in Management from the University of Kansas. I study the social and psychological elements of work that make teams more functional and improve their creativity and complex problem solving. In my teaching, I focus on coaching students of all levels and all ages to develop strong introspection skills and a people-centric management and leadership philosophy. Hi, I'm Whitney Schreck, owner of Whitney S. Consulting, which is a human flourishing consulting and coaching company. I have a master's in global leadership from Fuller University in Pasadena, California. I'm certified in TTI Success Insights Trimetrics. My work is in coaching and guiding leaders into better self-awareness and communication skills that will aid them in human flourishing, both in their personal and professional leadership journey. In the early pandemic era, Molly Wood, a former host of one of my favorite podcasts called Make Me Smart, mentioned that this moment felt like it was going to be a hinge point, which is a moment where the norms and assumptions about how the world works really pivot on a pretty grand scale. As Whitney and I have been talking over the last few years about changes to the nature of professional and personal relationships that we've seen, and really changes to our relationship with work itself, we realized that there are actually a lot of hinge points going on in this current moment, and they're not just due to the pandemic. The fundamentals of human nature aren't changing, but how we engage with each other and ourselves is changing. A lot of toxic patterns are waning. Some new ones are being built in, there's so much potential for all of us to flourish if we are willing to thoughtfully examine our relationships. Our hope is to bring you conversations and revisional insights around these hinge points and these types of relationships. Today, we're going to be talking about friendship and relationships with creativity and rhythms. So we just decided to like interview each other. <laughs> we did. We thought it would be kind of a good way to get to know the podcast and get to know each other. We thought it was a good spot to start. Yeah, we've both written out lists of questions for one another to ask. Yes, I'm really excited about this. Me too, I'm excited and nervous. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we kind of decided on like kind of going back and forth with some of these questions. Mm -hmm. Hillary, I think that you're an amazing woman. You are an incredible professor. But I was wondering, how do you think the world of academia has changed since you became a professor at such a young age? I don't think people probably know how young you are. So maybe you can give a little bit of background of who you are and how you started in your career. Sure. So I started my PhD when I was 22, straight out of undergrad. And I finished a little quickly for my program. So I finished in four years. They tell you to assume it's going to be a five, maybe six year program. And there are pros and cons to doing that, but I did it. And so I was a professor at 26. I got hired for a tenure track job at 25. The first time I actually started teaching undergrads was my second semester of graduate school. <laughs> I was freshly 23. I'm a January baby. Wow. Um, and I was teaching a bunch of like 21 and 22 year olds, mm. which was, yeah. they, were, they were so very kind. They had the potential to really make that an awful experience. And they were really nice to me. And I think we had a great time and hopefully they learned some things that they found useful eventually. That's great. I'm glad to hear that because sometimes like I think if you are in certain environments, they don't see you as that superior or want to mm -hmm. listen to you because of your age. Do you feel like being a female in this industry, like as a professional and a professor and being young, did that impact your career at all? Especially combined with my youth. I, I am at this point 32. So, so people are now mistaking me for a graduate student. Because I I don't think I look my age. I mean, let's I, I will not be the I will not be the one that says that. But um, 
uh, people are pretty regularly mistaking me for a graduate student. I used to get hit on by the undergrads in the stairwell. Oh, goodness. Um, yeah, I know. Right. And part of the way that I have handled that over the years is that I just dress up more, you know, collared shirts and button downs. And very clearly I'm dressed better than the students around me. And I use that a lot at the very beginning to kind of create a little bit of a power differential. I was always in a structured blouse and like Clever. pleated pants and stuff like that. And it just, it, it's a little bit of armor that you put on in the mornings too. So that's that dynamic. I love um, that. That's great. Do you have students that come up to you and kind of ask you how you got started? at such a young age and how, like how you deal with it, especially like young female professors or aspiring professors? Mm -hmm. It's not usually young aspiring professors. And that's partially a function of the university, which I teach and where those students are, are headed. But we, we do talk about how do you navigate being a respected person in the room when you're young, especially like I teach in the Mid-South and I, I feel like age is used heavily as a proxy for competence in that culture, mm -hmm. as opposed to say, I think if you were on the coasts, you have a lot of young professionals who are really good at what they do. And I'm not saying that those people don't exist in the Mid-South, but I think there's a cultural norm that mm -hmm. youth equals shut up and sit down and you get to listen, not talk. Right. Yeah. And so I talk with that about my students a lot. And even when I bring in some of the, the entrepreneurs to my entrepreneurship class, I have a handful that are young and we'll talk a little bit about that dynamic and how you navigate it. And it's just, it's just a little tricky. I have one who just sold his company for unknown millions of dollars. He's 26. <laughs> Former student of mine, absolutely delightful. I think, I think we're friends now. I think we've hit that point. Mm -hmm but he doesn't like to have Zoom calls with people. He would rather start a business call on the phone because he wants to establish his credentials with you before you see his face. <gasps> I get that. You know, I think the younger group of people that are coming up and even the ones that like, I worked with troubled youth for a year, they pick up on those dynamics early on, like how you dress, how you present yourself. I actually worked with a young man in one of these facilities and he was taking polos from another kid who got a stipend and had money. And he had multiple polos. And back in that day, like that was the thing, colored polos. Mm -hmm. He said, Miss Whitney, when I walk into the room, my teachers talk to me differently. They look me in the eye. My peers treat me differently. He understood the power of the first gate that you walk through is the eye gate. So how you physically present yourself, what you look like, how you dress sort of demands a different response. Right. You pick up a different set. You play to a different set of stereotypes. And so people put you in a different box. It's still exactly. a box, but it's a different one. It's a different box. It's the box you'd rather be in than right. look down upon and not seen as like, you know, you don't have anything. You don't have like a an established background or you don't have the name brand clothing or something along those lines. But even in the professional world, when you walk in as a female, you know, you have to take it like one step further. You want to be seen as, you know, presentable and respected. And that just has a very different vibe in the professional world. Especially when I looked a little younger than I do now, but even now, and it depends very much on the space that I'm in. Sometimes you also have to sort of go out of the way to establish your intellectual and experiential credentials early on in conversation. So the vocabulary that you choose to use, the kinds yeah. of ideas you choose to espouse, the power with which you espouse them. Mm -hmm. I've had conversations with people where there's a little bit of that, like a oh, little girl, you don't know what you're talking about. And it's like, oh, pardon me. Let me go get that doctoral vocabulary out <laughs> of the drawer. Let me bring that forward. And it does, it totally changes how people like, like sometimes they'll react viscerally and they'll actually take a physical step back. Yeah. I was wondering, how do you see that with your interactions with, because it's both men and women. 
mm-hmm. especially in like this Southern world. I mean, I understand there's a dynamic of it. That I think is really amazing where, you know, you want to honor and respect your elders, but sometimes there is a blind spot. And especially with people who have worked hard and established themselves and do have that knowledge, maybe they don't have the years behind them, but that doesn't make them any less competent or capable of achieving the task at hand. I have less of that trouble with women, even women who are, say, 20 or 30 years my senior. The reaction I get when I have to do that, though, is very different out of men versus women. Men, men, at least in this culture, and again, this is the Mid-South. I didn't mm-hmm. I didn't have these challenges when I lived in the Midwest because I grew up in Kansas. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't tend to have them if I'm interacting with people from the coasts. Mm. But the men tend to take a step back and they're like, oh, okay, oh, we're the adversary almost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The women tend to take a step back and they get defensive. Yeah. Okay. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, this, what you are has become a commentary on what I am and I'm not. Like you're a threat almost. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Can, yeah. Or it's seen as that you're posturing with them in some way. You kind of get into these toe to toe conversations instead of actually being heard. Yes. I don't know that I've actually said this to you before. I say this to my husband a lot as a point of frustration. I think in part, because I am young, because I am female, because I am accomplished, because I am like a reasonably pretty individual. There are a lot of people who use me as a mirror for their own insecurities. Mm. Yeah. And they're looking in the reflection and they don't like it. Yes. And they, they treat me differently because of what they're seeing in the mirror. And like, I'm not going out of my way to be a mirror for anybody. Right. I think that we're all on our own journeys and we can all be our own person and we can all succeed together. Like that's a big thing for me, (laughs) but, but there are some people where their insecurities, they just really enter into their interactions with me because I make them uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think discomfort is a good lesson to sit in. I don't think it needs to be removed. And not that it's your job to make people comfortable or uncomfortable, but like when we feel those discomforts within ourselves, I think that's just like a wake up call of like, I heard the other day, somebody said one of the greatest pains that you'll ever have in life is meeting someone who could have like, who did what you could have done, like meeting the version of yourself that you could have been. So yeah, you're correct when you're saying that people look at you and they can have that reflection and how unfortunate that they don't get to engage and and entertain a relationship with someone so wonderful as you are. I know you're a highly creative person. How has that changed, enhanced, or altered your creativity, these experiences? I think a lot of it has made me a little more insular. Mm. I'm not trying to wander around and have to constantly be proving myself or constantly helping other people feel better about themselves while I'm just trying to live my day-to-day and do my job. Mm-hmm. I recognize that that that's part of it, but in an effort to try to make sure that it doesn't become too much of it, a lot of my creativity is very insular. I'm very picky about who I work with mm-hmm. when I'm doing research, especially on really highly creative kinds of research. It has to be, uh, you know, people that I can really dig in with and really, you know, approaches an equal and we can bandy about ideas and there's not lots of concerns about image. I mean, we know what we know about creativity from the research, right? Is that you have to have a high degree of psychological safety. You have to feel like you can throw things out there and not be told that they're terrible or that you're terrible because you came up with them. Like part of the creative process is half baked ideas, but ideas don't spontaneously emerge fully baked. And mm-hmm. so you have to have that sense of safety. And so I just really 
in an effort to try to make sure there's room for creativity in especially the research side of the work that I do, I really only work with the people that I feel like that way. I try really hard. I have a handful of projects that I've done with people where I don't feel that way, but they're real cut and dried and there's nothing particularly novel about them. They're that publisher parish response type project <laughs> where I'm doing it because it's going to get published and that gets me, you know, tenure, yeah. which yeah. I have now. So I can now focus on the things that are really exciting to me. Congratulations, by the way. <laughs> I'm going to throw that in there. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate Yay. it. It's always a journey. Mine was, I think, a little unique, but I think everybody's journey to tenure is a little unique. So yeah. but we're there. That's what's important. That's amazing. And we'll be right back. I'd really like to know from your perspective, how your definition of what a good relationship is has changed over time. And you've been in a professional space for a while. And I think you've done a lot of growing and maturing by personal choice, but also by necessity. And also, obviously you've had personal relationships for your whole life, but I think that the way that you view the role of those personal relationships in your life has changed. And I'd really just love to hear you talk a little bit about how that shifted. Yeah, this is a great question. And I think it ties into some of the things that you were saying about being in the South. I grew up just adoring my great-grandfather. I respected him. I had a lot of incredible relationships with both men and women, young and old. I was always the, the kid that gravitated towards older people anyways, because I was kind of an old soul as a child. I feel like there was a lady across the street named Eva, and I used to go and sit on the porch with her and drink tea, uh, <laughs> and that, that was my ideal of play. So I've always appreciated the perspective of young and old, I've never seen one as inferior or superior. Unfortunately, that is not the view of everyone else. <laughs> and as I've, as I've graduated over time in relationships, I've found that super intriguing. And I, I have friends from all walks of life, all ages, backgrounds from different parts of the world. And it's never been a struggle for me. I think when I got to college, I struggled with my own insecurities and I had really wonderful professors. So it's any wonder that one of my good friends is a professor. <laughs> I think that they serve as an incredible role and guides to life. I know some people are like, you don't need college. I did. I was one of those individuals that I needed healing in certain leadership roles. I grew up in a, um, a religious background and they were good and bad relationships in that world. And I feel like my professors were an example of a good relationship. So educated people, and not everybody's experience is this way, but educated people who weren't condescending and unkind and cruel, but postured positions of questions and um, space for creative thinking and pushing you. I always had this one professor, she was like, one day you're gonna get a master's degree. One day you're gonna get a master's degree. <laughs> she me out in public. She's like, you're too bright to not like go on and get a continued ed education. and. I loved her story because she became like the dean of this department and she was a woman of color. And I could see myself more clearly through that relationship. And I always say like, when you have those really good ones on the front end, sometimes you have blind spots. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that happened to me when I transitioned into business. Cause like I believed in myself and I had teachers who believed in me and helped build my confidence. So it was like this yo-yoing all throughout my life of like good and bad and good and bad. And the adversity in it was good for me because like it strengthened me to understand that not everything, there's no black and white, right? Mm -hmm. So you can be in an academic world and there's still be not professors there that aren't there. 
and doing mm-hmm. like it's almost like a vocation <laughs> if I can say that like a calling it's has you gotta like love what you do for some for some for some <laughs> others not so much it's the same thing in the professional world there are people out there and <laughs> I, I call them leeches or emotional vampires mm. and I I worked with a couple of those throughout my career and did not realize it because I thought the more you work, the more you prove yourself and every person in their young academic career goes through a proving stage. That is absolutely normal. You're, you're showing up, you're showing off a little bit, you know, you're putting in the extra energy and the hours, but there's a time and a, and a place where you become established, like you've proven yourself. And it's important for us as young professionals to recognize that. I mean, I'm no longer a young professional, but that was what I didn't know. I didn't have the hindsight. I didn't really have outside of my professors, anyone who had done what I was trying to do. Like I'm the first successful entrepreneur in my family, one of the first to graduate from college and get a master's degree. So when you look around you and you don't have that guidance, you fall, you can fall prey (laughs) to people who see that. And that happened to me. So one of my Poor relationships, like I call this person just a, it's like a vampire, like a blood sucker. Mm-hmm. They saw the opportunity and ironically, this person called me his muse originally. And I had an unpaid internship for two and a half years. That's why I pay my interns two, now. Hold <laughs> up. Two and a half years? <laughs> yeah. I thought, okay. It was on and off. So he only reached out to me to go get coffee whenever he was needing a new idea. And I am an idea generator. I love like collaborating and talking about new ideas, but it also really respected like older people and authority. And I was like, oh, this person really wants to like invest in me. And like, they're having these conversations and he was really good at like complimenting you and, oh, I bought you coffee. That's good. And then walking away. And I didn't know that he was taking those ideas and implementing them. Uh-huh. And then I, I asked at one point if I could come work for him. And at the time he was like, no. And then a couple of months later, he was like, well, I convinced, you know, my other partner that it was okay for you to come on. And, and then he, there was a lot of plots and ploys that were happening that I was extremely naive and unaware of. I do remember in the beginning, I I have a lot of respect for myself now that I look back because I, Sometimes when you come out of those situations, you, you have like a lot of anger and blame and you're, you're so frustrated, but I was really like on top of it. I was asking for things and he was gaslighting me and saying, you know, how dare you ask this? He was like, do you understand? Like, this is a, a real like golden opportunity and you should just be like appreciative of what you're getting. And he got to the point where it was so bad in this like case, he was my mentor and my boss now. So mm-hmm. And there wasn't really a lot of opportunity for me as a young professional to get those other kinds of things because he was doing what I was trying to do, what I was pursuing. And um, unfortunately, in the South, it is a very, it's a notable thing that you can talk to a lot of females in business that you need a man to kind of open the door for you. And I don't mean like out of courtesy. I actually met a woman here who's very established as a business coach. And she said to me, (laughs) she met a higher level exec in a very prestigious industry. And he said to her, as she was already, she had an established platform, was able to like walk into like J.B. Hunt and Tyson and like do these trainings and coachings. And she was incredible. And we were having coffee and she said, I was sharing a little bit of this. And I said, I don't have a bad lens on men. I said, I just, I don't really care for vampires. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> and she said, I like that you have a category. 
And I was like, that's not all men. I've had some incredible men that were my mentors. Just this one in particular, I had the longest experience with. And she said, yeah, when I, uh, when I was established here, I had a man in my office had the audacity to say, we both know that you need a sugar daddy to open doors for you. And he's like, I'm willing to do that for you. Oh, and she oh, said, um, gross. <laughs> I gross. She was like the fact that he knew and he just said it blatantly. I was like, oh, in the age of recording, why could you say that? <laughs> I know there's schools out there where to get tenure, you basically, especially our top tier schools, often you have to be adopted by one of the older white male faculty members who's a full prof and if you don't get adopted by one of them where they kind of shepherd you through the process and like you said open a bunch of doors you actually just doing the work that's supposed to get you tenure on paper publishing the papers teaching the classes to a high degree you know Mm -hmm. developing community relationships whatever it is that's not enough you have to have the person that exists in spaces and it's gross It's everywhere and it's all over the world. You know, it's not just in the South, unfortunately. And I've heard it more and more from both men and women, young people, like going into these industries and being, and the reason I call these individuals emotional vampires, because they're writing you for your energy. Uh You're young, you're fresh, you're vibrant. You've got new ideas. When I pass old material that's told to me in front of you, like you see it through a new lens. And as I'm having a conversation with you, it's like life, it's a breath of fresh air. But on top of that, I'm going to take that idea. I'm going to pee all over it. And then I'm going to put my name on it. You And you should feel honored that I did that. Because that give and take of ideas is supposed to be natural. The idea that I say something to you and it sparks things in you, but then you say something to me and it sparks things in me. Yeah. Cultivation is what you're talking yes. about. And that collaboration. Yeah. But when you're a vampire and this happens and I see people sometimes accidentally do this, I actually coached a guy and I was like, when you're like in this mentoring industry, actually, I said, the way that you've written this job description is it's making, you are literally a vampire sucking the life out of this individual and you're also not compensating them properly. And and he was like, what? He was really shocked. He actually changed it. So sometimes it's an awareness thing. Like um, not every, that's why I say, you know, don't. It's not like a pendulum swing, like all men and all people are like, you know, Mm -hmm. like this. No, we have our bad experiences. And you asked me what was a good one. I said, some of these bad experiences have showed me how important it is to point out what is good, like what Mm -hmm. is healthy. And it's not necessarily the opposite. Sometimes it's just speaking up and saying, hey, I don't feel like this is going the right direction. Or, hey, I feel like I should be paid a little bit more because of the work that I'm doing. And I spoke up for myself when I was younger. Unfortunately, in my experiences, I got verbally assaulted. I got cornered, cussed out in my ear, chased down a hallway. So there were all these red flags, right? But so many people in my life are like, you have this great, incredible opportunity and you should stay in it and just, you know, bow your head and just keep going until you can get where you you need to go. And I was like, this is like draining me, you know, this is no longer life-giving. And I started doing projects where I didn't have to do it with him and and then Shalia just, you know, broke away. And it's unfortunate because you're not the only person that that person's going to do that to. I'm not special by any means. It's just that those individuals have lost the thread on what it means to harness, like the create creativity, I think is your greatest power. So how to harness that creative energy and use power and wield it well. So power in and of itself isn't bad <laughs> and creativity isn't bad, but I think sometimes the person using it can, if they've gone sour, 
it turns it bad. So some of my greatest examples were professors, my first business mentor, um, Clint Relier, <laughs> listening to this, he was one of the most incredible people. So you'll find kindred spirits. Mm-hmm. If you look for it, stay open. Don't let the, the leeches and the vampires shut you off. But he said to me, he was like, Whitney, you can't save the world. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not trying to save the world. <laughs> he was like, cause I said, how do you go home after you see all these different things that we need to work on in the world and from business to just, you know, in general. And I was having my little moment and um, he brought me back down to earth and he said, there are going to be people who come in with different processes and different agendas. And at the end of the day, they're all going to fade and someone else is going to come up with something new. He said, what doesn't fade and what doesn't change is being good at relationship. And if you are good at taking care of people and being, you know, like that, you know, where it goes back and forth, like it's reciprocal and getting really healthy at that. He was like, you'll never not be valid. And I had that always echoing in the back of my mind. So even in like the darkest moments of working with this other, you know, vampire, I came out thinking, I know the truth and that truth will eventually bubble up. I love that. If you understand how to engage with people and you do engage with people in relationships that like, that's the key really to success across pretty much everything (laughs) across the globe. (laughs) Well, I mean, and I also mean like across all spheres of life now, I mean, to that end, I think boundary setting is really important. Yeah. And I, I like to say that, that my thirties have been about recognizing the hubris and thinking that you can make somebody else change Mm. and about learning how to set and respect others' boundaries. Exactly. I like that. Yes, mm-hmm. I agree. I've I've shared some of my challenging experiences. What do you think was one of your most challenging experiences specifically in your field? And I think I've touched on this. Do you think that women are treated as fairly as men in your field in regards to like how they are perceived, how they are paid? Early on, one of the most challenging experiences I had. So my husband will liken the academic lifestyle to that of a monk. Like there's an asceticism dynamic to, especially like if you're at a, at a top tier school, which I'm not going to pretend that I am. And that's been very intentional on my part, but you sacrifice a lot of things in order to engage with the research at the level that is necessary in the field as it stands. I think when the field was less mature. So if we go back like 40 years, it was a lot easier to publish. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not anymore. The standards are really high because the field is more mature and it's also a lot bigger. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have a lot more people competing to put things in this roughly the same number of journals. And additionally, in order to do things like get tenure or get promoted to full professor, you have to do more publishing. Mm. So like you just have, there's a supply and demand challenge that makes it really difficult work to get top tier publications. And that demands, again, that level of asceticism where so much of your life has to really be targeted towards that. And that's not really my scene. Mm -hmm. And that was really hard for people to swallow when I was in graduate school. And I was like, really, I was really open about it at the very beginning in my (laughs) application materials, actually in my literal application materials to the program that I went to, I was like, I don't really want to be a professor. I actually would rather be in the consulting world, which now I am a professor, but like, I don't do it the way that they had expected me to do it. And I think that they viewed that as a problem with me that they could fix. Mm. And that was a pretty consistent thing. Did they just try to like talk over you or try to drill it into you? 
what did how did they go about fixing it there was like a heavy sales job about like oh my gosh i think that you would really like this i think that you really need to double down and focus i think that you would really love it if you got an endowed professorship that was primarily a research chair which is a total misread of the situation i like to teach (laughs) um and and they just like they kept trying and when it came time so i was in my third year of the program like i had taken my comprehensive exams. I was getting ready to work on my dissertation. Several of the senior people in the department tried to slow that process down. They were like, oh, you're not ready. Mm. You don't know what you want to study for your dissertation. And I was like, okay, okay, fine. I will take the idea that I think I want to study. I'm going to set it aside. I'm going to go come up with other ideas. So I did that for like six weeks. Do you feel like that was, was that gaslighting or were they actually trying to be helpful and and concerned or, or a mixture of both? I think they were trying to be helpful and concerned. I think that they could not imagine a version of being an academic that wasn't their existence. Got it. So I did my thing. And I actually, I think that this is a great process. If you have to do a really, really big thing and you have an idea for that thing, I think you should set it aside and try to come up with more ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, What happened to me is I had my three ideas that I had come up with after you know, six weeks of thinking about the other two. And I'd been thinking about the the first one that came up during my whole comprehensive exam study period, which is a whole weird existence time. My life will never again be like it was when I was studying for my comps. And I came to one of my, she was a young pre-tenure faculty and I came to her and I had these three ideas and I was like, what do you think of them? And she said, I think they're the same idea. she was right. And so like, that was really reaffirming and stuff. But then I was like, okay, cool. Research methods are one of my strengths. So I wrote a study that I could totally do in the time frame, And then I wanted to go on the job market. So I could be done in four years. Mm. And I didn't have, at that point in time, I didn't have any publications and the same people that were like, oh, you're not ready for this. Oh, you need to go into an academic career. Here I am getting ready to go into an academic career. And they're like, you shouldn't go on the job market yet. You shouldn't do it. You're not ready. You don't have any publications. It's not setting you up for success. And I was like, I don't want to go to an R1 university folks. Mm-hmm. And they were like, I can't even, I don't even know what to do with that, but you shouldn't go on the job market yet. You should stick around and thank heavens. My doctoral advisor was Laura Popo, who I'm still friends with, who I actually had a meeting with this morning before you and I got on. Aww. She's wonderful. She's one of the people that I love to do research with super collaborative with me. And she said, this is your life. I understand that you don't want this R1 career. I get why. I want this R1 career. You don't have to want this R1 career. I want for you what makes you happy. And so she let me go on the job market. She let me mm-hmm. do my dissertation proposal. She let me do my dissertation. She let you own it. She let she let it be my journey, which yeah. it was supposed to be my journey. <laughs> And it so happens, incidentally, that all of the other people that didn't want me to go out quickly were men. I think that's more incidental and more of a function of like gender dynamics in our field in terms of like we're a very male heavy profession Mm -hmm. in business academia. I I think if they had been my advisor, they wouldn't have let me go out. I think they would have made me stay. Yeah, you got to have people who empower you in your corner, especially people who understand that field. That like just moves me so much because I'm like, that is exactly what your that's your position is like to like to pave the path. I think I, I heard um one of these like fashion moguls was on a podcast with another, you know, high-ranking female. And she said, somebody the other day was like, pass the torch. She said, I'm not passing any torch. She was like, I will guide on, but light your own. If you need some light from mine, you can get enlightened. But she was like, 
I'm still carrying mine. You have your own to, to carry. And I love it when people reemphasize that, like, you don't have to be me. You don't have to do what I'm doing in order to like move forward. And how many times do we stifle creativity and new pathways? And you were the person forging that path. There's somebody else who might want to say, well, what if I want to go a different route? Now you're an example of that, that it is possible. So when again, the hubris of believing that yeah. you can make people change. <laughs> so arrogant. Even if it comes from like a well-meaning place, like I want people to change so their lives can be easier because I think that they're making terrible decisions that are just hurting them. But the hubris Mm -hmm. to believe that I am so strong that as somebody who is not you, I can convince you or manipulate you or create a situation that forces you to change. Right? Like it is, it is hubristic, which is, that's not a way that I would have thought of it more than maybe like two years ago. And the way that I approach my students is that like, I open doors and I tell you why it would be a good idea for you to walk through them, Mm -hmm. but like you walk through them. And if you disagree with my assessment that that's a good door for you, go through another door. Exactly. Exactly. In reflection to that, what rhythms do you have to protect, possibly heal and preserve in your personhood and creativity? I mean, obviously you've learned a lot from that experience. Yes. So I am very careful about relationship levels and like who I let in, how far. And I don't mean that to say that I'm like a closed off person. Like, I think I'm really friendly. I think I'm really easy to get along with. But in terms of people that I go to for advice, like I don't have a dedicated, this is my mentor that I go to for everything. I have a village of people. I like to say it takes a village to raise a Hillary, right? Like I have, and I will go, I will go ask them for very specific pieces of advice because I'm not trying to be any of them. And having had that experience where people were trying to make me be them, I'm not mm. interested in being somebody else. I like who I am. I would like to be a better version of myself, but that involves taking little bits and pieces from people. So I'm, I'm careful about like, who I put in a position where I ask them for advice about decisions I should make. Yeah. Because I don't want them to be like, well, you didn't follow my advice and now I'm better about it. Oh, and then you're in this yo-yo relationship. Yeah. Punishment. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I also, I, um, I like to say that professionally I live on an Island. I'm not dependent on much of anything anymore. And part of that is things that happened in graduate school, but part of it is, is the nature of the institution and the political dynamics where I am. Like I've stopped for the most part trying to do things that require me to make big asks of anybody else, even if that big ask seems like it should be something that's sort of within their wheelhouse or within their world responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, I mostly like do things that are based around the resources that I have control of, the things that I know how to do, that kind of stuff. And there are other people that I will allow on to my island, mm-hmm. but there aren't a ton. And, and that I recognize has the potential to be highly dysfunctional. And is it like a long-term strategy in this career? Mm-hmm. Isn't super functional, but right now I'm insulating myself from things and I'm sort of letting the storm pass. Got it. You're trying to preserve your peace. It sounds like you're yes. trying to like have peace of mind and yeah. Yes. And another way to think about it is just that I have really, really strong boundaries. Yeah. And I love that. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, a, and a lot of my boundaries, I don't even have to articulate. It's just that I never offer somebody the opportunity to, to, to yeah, to have like access to you in that way, whether it's personal or professional. Yeah. Yeah. I see their chaos and it stays over there. Mm-hmm. Say that again. 
Say that again. <laughs> you keep your chaos over there. It is not welcome here. I, I have terms for these different types of people. I call them hijackers. It's they probably have the best intention in the world. They have probably good energy around other people. And I heard somebody the other day say, it's not about like how you feel about that person, but how they make you feel. Because in the process, like you're going to be, if you're working with someone on a project for any extended period of time, or if you're in a professional relationship with someone and it's going to demand a lot of your energy, take into consideration, like, how do you guys, you know, interact? What kind of, what are your expectations? Can this person hold to that expectation? Do they constantly like deviate from it and then drain you every time that you're in conversation, yeah, it's really important. And it's not necessarily that that person's bad. I put hijackers in there simply just because they probably are very endearing, but they haven't bridled their own sense of like execution or how they come across. Their social intelligence might not be really strong. So I do think there's a lot of wisdom when it comes to assessing who you want to spend your time and energy with, whether it's personal or professional. Well, and for it's worth for those those that aren't familiar with like the rhythm of an academic life. If I start a research project with somebody, if it's fast, we're talking eighteen months mm-hmm. with a dedicated, pretty consistent interaction with that individual. I have projects that I have been working on for five or six years, mm-hmm. and that's just the nature of what we do. You really are committing, and I'm very careful about that. And even in committee work, if we're doing intense work, there's a lot of interaction. There's a lot of dependent. I need you to do things like respond to your email in a timely fashion mm-hmm. or at all, <laughs> which most of my colleagues are actually really excellent about, but I've had a few where it's like, well, I guess that we will just proceed without you and I'll leave your name on things, but you're not actually here. Well, we are going to take a break right there for the week. Our conversation was getting too good and too long, so we decided to split this first one into two episodes. So Whitney and I will be back interviewing each other next week with episode two in our first season of Relationship Revisions.